Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Rachel Conliffe. I'm Rachel Wehrmacht. And I'm Freddie. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we are reacting to Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement. So we were briefed quite heavily in advance that this was going to be quite bleak and we shouldn't expect any rabbits to come out of hats. And my general impression from it is it was very bleak and there were no rabbits out of any hats. The the general headline kind of vibe of this fiscal statement, which is basically a budget, can we call it a budget? Let's call it a budget, is taxes are going to rise, spending is going to be frozen or is going to be slashed and living standards are falling, falling, falling. So that's basically the initial headline response to it. Let's go into a bit more detail about what was in it and also why some of the measures that were in it had to play out that way and why those decisions were made. Rachel, you were watching. What were your, what were your impressions? I think we've seen the Office for Budget Responsibilities for a Response, the, the organisation that marks the government's homework, essentially. And they said basically that the tax burden is now at the highest sustained level since World War II. The overwhelming amount of tax hikes that are in this budget, that's the story, really. So it's kind of everything from Jeremy Hunt freezing the current income tax thresholds. So it'd be something like massive amounts added to people's wages. And it'll also be things like council tax. So so people's council tax will also go up. They're going to basically allow town halls, which are struggling and which, you know, it'd be like 95% of town halls that will take advantage of it, will be able to put up their council tax by about 5%. Really. So that's like another... 100 quid on band D properties. And it's, it's just like the overwhelming weight of tax that there's going to be in the next couple of years and just how that's going to make people feel. Office for Budget Responsibility thinks there'll be a 7% fall in living standards. So that's like eight years of living standards growth wiped out in the course of the next two years, basically. It's just bloody miserable, really. <laughs> in short. 
That's uh, maybe that could be the title for for, for this podcast. Bloody miserable. <laughs> Just bloody uh, miserable. On the tax rises, a lot of them are what we're being referred to as stealth tax rises because, right. as you say, the headline levels of tax aren't increasing. What is happening is the level of which people are being dragged into various tax bans, either from yeah. paying no tax into paying tax or into paying the higher rate. It, they're being frozen until 2028, and obviously with inflation really high, that basically means that any pay rises you get drag you into that higher bracket of tax. Also, as you say, the options for councils to increase taxes, which they basically all will. We are getting a windfall tax, though, or more of a windfall tax than than was expected, uh, or at least than than certainly than Liz Truss wanted to to do, and. That's one of Labour's policies, isn't it? Isn't it, Freddie? The idea that we're in this crisis because the cost of energy is really high, and therefore companies that are profiting off that should pay more tax. Yeah, we've been in this strange scenario the past few months, whereby Liz, well, when Liz Truss was in power, she pretended there was no windfall tax because she didn't support it, and Labour said there was no windfall tax because they wanted to introduce one. Uh, but Sunak brought it in back in March, I think it was, and all they're doing now is ex- increasing the rate at which companies have to pay it, and I think they're going to make it last for longer. So that's just one example of the Conservatives taking away one of uh, Labour's key talking points. There's, there are others as well. They also said they're going to expand insulation of homes, which is one of the key parts of Labour's energy strategy. They said if we insulate people's homes, then they can pay less for energy. So I think it was a tricky budget for Labour as well. You wrote today that it was sort of Jeremy Hunt channeling his inner George Osborne, which is a terrifying image. Um, but do, do you want to talk about what you mean by that? Yeah, I was trying to get at the style of the budget. I mean, you've got to look at why is Jeremy Hunt even there? He was brought in to restore some sense of economic credibility to the government. And part of that is about style. It is about the way that you talk and the forecast that you publish and whatnot. And that was a reversion back to George Osborne. And the key political part of that is that Osborne used this veneer of competence to try and hide some of the things that he was doing. And I think Jeremy Hunt was trying to do the same thing. You look at, for instance, the use of, I mean, politicians always do this, but I think it's it's part of this politics of competence that Osborne has often tried to project. You use, for instance, nominal versus real measures sometimes to hide the fact that benefits, for instance, haven't reached the same levels they ha- they were in 2010, even though nominally it's increasing massively over the next year. So it's a similar style And I think politically, that's going to be very difficult as well for the government, because back in 2010, Osborne was able to go, look, the financial crash happened under Labour. We're now trying to fix it. Well, the financial crash that happened two months ago, or, you know, the economic turmoil, as the government put it, that happened uh, two months ago, happened under the Tories. So it's a much more tricky political prospect. Yeah, I think Rachel Reeves, when she was responding, pointed out that the need for these tax rises and spending cuts were Liz Truss's mini budget and how much that that blew up. But also she was trying to link it to 12 years of of Tory rule as well. So sort of trying to make the point that it's not just that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng blew up the economy. A lot of these are structural or systemic issues that haven't really been fixed. On the spending front, one of the most headline issues announcements came on the energy price guarantee, which is staying past April, but the cap is rising. So that means that people's annual energy bills, which are currently on average capped at £2,500 a year, are going up to 3000 
pounds a year with some targeted support for pensioners and people on means tested benefits how big of a, a, a of an issue is is that how how big of a a U-turn, Rachel, do you think, given the winter that we're going to face and, and, and the economic situation most people will find themselves in come April when that change happens? I think I think people were expecting the cap to rise, to be to be lifted, basically. How much it'll affect people, it's kind of, it's hard to judge because there are so many little stings in the tail to this budget. It's kind of like mm. how, pe- how much people are going to feel it. We'll kind of know this time next year just how much people's budgets are going to be squeezed it's worth pointing out that sort of higher earners don't escape this either they're kind of they'll be part of the fiscal drag also but I think one of the things that's sort of politically difficult about this budget is that at the same time they they briefed at one point that they were going to look at reforming like the non-dom status which would have saved about what three billion a year that didn't happen they also kept the the lifting of the bankers bonuses cap that was left in place as well and there's also kind of like a little tax cut for banks in there as well which hasn't been picked up too much yet but basically that there's a lift on the threshold by which the, some of the banks are going to be taxed is also is also going to be lifted slightly so yeah there's a lot of little political difficulties in there I think for, for Jeremy Hunt I think when some of the front pages are published tomorrow there'll be some very difficult contrasts drawn between those two things. Yeah, I think on the public spending is very interesting and that's where the big danger for the government is. There was a narrative leading up to the budget that what the government are going to do, they're going to push back all the public spending cuts until after the next election, which means they wouldn't get the uh, political uh, blowback from it. But I'm not sure, I mean, they are going to do that. Their reasoning for it is that you're going to see a contraction in the next two years. Therefore, we need to loosen fiscal policy to try and alleviate some of the pain of that. And then as the economy goes back to growth, you contract a little bit. But just in terms of the politics, I think they're going to really struggle because, yes, they're going to have a recession regardless of whether it's they're not having the cuts in the next two years. And then if there is an election or when there is an election, they're going to have to say, actually, we are going to cut going into it. So they've got a recession followed by a promise to cut uh, public services. I don't think that's a great sell. What do you think about Labour and Labour's response and, and the position that they're in now? Because in a way, like they've been handed a whole load of really good ammunition against the Conservatives. I think Welsh Labour already have a poster out right now, which is pay more, get less, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. But it's kind of also a trap for Labour, right? It's been a very tricky six months for Labour because they've had to respond to different governments, different economic policies week by week. And what they've started to do is resist specifying at all what they would do because they, they say they won't know where the economy is. And I mean, that seems to ring true by the by the next election. Um, Rachel, any key lines for Rachel Reeves? I saw one clip that was fun where she sort of had a bit of a go about the non-DOM tax state stuff. Because obviously, Rishi Sunak's wife, Akshat Murthy, was until recently registered as a non-DOM, but is now paying all of her taxes. After weeks of, will he, won't he, we learned today that the Chancellor won't, after all, be clapping down on non-DOMs. Tax-free income for millionaires, while millions face frozen tax allowances and council tax hides. How can he possibly claim that this is fair? He refuses to act, and I wonder why. (laughs) Maybe that was the only policy that he can't get signed off by number 10 down (laughs) in
So she had a bit of a bit of a dig at the Chancellor about that. But I think that that is going to be an important attack line for Labour. And uh, it was the, the the line under Cameron and Osborne was we're all in this together, and that was kind of sort of the message that Jeremy Hunt was trying mm-hmm. to channel today. But Rishi Sunak, the richest Prime Minister in modern times, by some metrics richer than the King, his Chancellor Jeremy Hunt also one of the wealthiest MPs, I think, also a multimillionaire. And just how it looks to have those two men saying, yeah, we're going to make you pay more tax and are going to have to have freezes on various areas of public spending. And we know that various parts of the state are falling apart, but we can't have the money yet because, you know, reasons. How's that going to look? Well, I think just as, just as you kind of outlined there, basically, not not great for the government. I think the sort of interesting thing now is just what Labour is going to go into the next election promising. I think Rachel Reeves will probably stick to all the rules that have been set out today. You know, so I think she'll she'll stick to the constraints as, as much as possible. I think Keir Starmer's party is very much like sceptical about big rises in day-to-day spending anyway. But I think if they're able to have lines where Labour is pledging to cut taxes... I think that's very difficult considering how much of the Conservative Party's base is going to be very riled up about what's being announced today. The vibe in the chamber was just sort of less less politically charged than than usual because we had a Chancellor announcing a budget that for the first time that I can remember where the Chancellor didn't actually want to be the Prime Minister. When you think about, you know, Rishi Sunak, George Osborne, these were both like very ambitious, very political chancellors and it didn't feel it just felt like a very different kind of event today. Yeah, and I think that point adds to the feeling that this is a caretaker government. If you haven't got that fight for the succession going on and this attempt to reinvigorate the policy offering, then it does feel as if they're coming to the end of the road. And you could see that, I think, in the chamber, as you say, Rachel, but the one political thing in Westminster anyway in the next few days is how a Tory MP is going to respond are you going to get a big backlash on tax rises? For instance, we already saw Ian Duncan Smith and Esther McVeigh. It was only a couple of them. And, you know, they're not as senior as well respected as they used to be, but they're still senior backbenchers. They've already came, come out and said that they don't want to support more tax rises. So the really important question in the next few hours and days is uh, whether more of them join them. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. If you enjoy The New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth. Featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is all about what was in what Jeremy Hunt said. We also finally got a response from the OBR marking the government's homework. As you said, Rachel, this is the Office uh, for Budget Responsibility. And I just want to read out the first paragraph of their economic and fiscal outlook that was published immediately after the autumn statement, because I think it's actually quite important to remind ourselves how we got to the situation and everything that's kind of gone on in the last year, how we got here. So bear with me as I read this. It begins, Our 26th economic and fiscal outlook has been unusual in both the time it took to produce and the process leading up to its publication. With the agreement of the Treasury, we started work on this forecast earlier than usual on the 29th of July, three weeks after Boris Johnson resigned as Prime Minister. We did this to ensure that his successor and their Chancellor would have an up-to-date picture of economic and fiscal prospects upon appointment in early September and be in a position to publish a forecast alongside any potential fiscal event later that month. In the 16 weeks since then, we have produced seven forecast rounds under three prime ministers and three chancellors working towards three official forecast dates. And this final published forecast reflects policies announced in five major fiscal statements since March. That is... um, You should do the whole thing as an audiobook. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the levels of sass, sort of passive aggressiveness from the OBR in that, I think are really quite astounding. But I think that the point is... It has been really, really chaotic. And much of the sort of economic crisis that we're seeing right now is driven by the war in Ukraine and the spike in the price of energy. But that was something that became very apparent in February and March. And it's only now in November that we've got a government or several iterations of a government that is finally getting to grips with what that means. How, how much do you think that political chaos is a factor in the economic situation that we're we're in at the moment. I mean, it's hard to tell. I think what the most important thing is to say that, yes, we have over the past nine months or so had political dislocation. And that means that you've not been able to have a, a government and a consistent chancellor making decisions on the economy. And that leads, I mean, one of the big problems for businesses over the past six months or so, if you speak to them, is uncertainty. And, you know, whether you want to look at all the counterfactuals of different policies or not, we know that uncertainty is really bad for businesses. And that's all we've had for the past nine months. When you think back, it's it's the Liz Truss and quasi Quarteng mini budget that is the big moment here. Basically, the market's forced them to act and forced them into this situation. And it was kind of like notable today how much Jeremy Hunt wanted to underline again and again how supportive he was of the bank's independence. And I think just for both parties going into the next election, it'll be said again and again just how much respect both of them have for financial institutions and how responsible they want to appear because they won't want any kind of repeat of what's happened this year. It's been just 
total mental cases, haven't they? Yeah, well, it's a sign of just how how much change we've had. Quasi Kwarteng promised tax cuts of thirty billion. Jeremy Hunt today announced tax rises and spending cuts of fifty four billion. And those two were th- th- those two statements were fifty five days apart. So sort of about eight weeks. And and that's kind of how much things have changed. Really, can either of you say? anything positive because I'm very aware that this has been an even bleaker more depressing uh, version of the podcast than than usual well I think the government were very clear that they wanted to protect R&D spending and capital spending I think I wrote about this on Monday if they hadn't had done that it would have enabled Labour to reclaim the growth mandate but I think wisely politically the government didn't do that so I think you know if if you want a, a modicum of positivity there you go Rachel anything anything positive well, what is it? It's year after next, the Office for Budget Responsibility is predicting growth. But I think considering how much people's spending power is going to be reduced, it seems like quite an optimistic prediction from, from what I can gather. Positivity, I think, did recognise some long-term problems, not cutting spending on infrastructure and projects that would encourage long-term growth is, is something there'll probably be a lot of consensus around, I would have thought. And so that's a positive thing. And just because I... I get asked this question a lot, mostly from Americans looking at the state that the UK economy is in. One thing that didn't get mentioned by Jeremy Hunt at all uh, was the impact of of Brexit. And without wanting to replay the Brexit wars uh, on this podcast in the next two minutes, do you think there is any prospect of now you've got people back in charge who are focused on the numbers and focused on sort of international institutions and less? This country has had enough of experts than the, the, the previous lot. We we might see some movement, some some thawing of UK EU relations. Is that is that a prospect? I think you've got to remember that Rishi Sunak is he was one of the original Brexiteers, so he's wedded to the project. He does think there are benefits, and I think it was Caroline Lucas raised it in the House after the statement and said, "Why have you not acknowledged Brexit?" And I don't think Hunt had a, a coherent reply to that, but he just said there are freedoms and we need to make use of them. I think you probably hear, whenever this is brought up, a lot of talk about solvency too, about trying to inject money into the economy from pension funds, etc. That's what, probably what they would say. So no, I don't think you're going to get a uh, realistic appraisal of Brexit's impact on the economy. I'd kind of broadly agree with that. And I think it sort of suits both parties not to not to kind of go digging back back in that kind of area. But as to a sort of thawing of relations, like potentially, but I feel it feels like it's feels like it's some years away from from here. Rejoin is certainly not going to be a central question at the next election. No, and, and the central question at the moment is the renegotiation of the protocol. Yeah. And that's about trade, it's about veterinary agreements, it's about the ECJ. These are quite technical issues that don't have much political power at the moment. So I don't think we're going to see a ma- unless 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 Labour suddenly come out in favour of the EU massively, maybe about getting a new agreement. But I just don't think that's going to happen at the moment anyway. Well, there's always the bromance between technocrats Rishi Sunak and Emmanuel Macron to <laughs> look forward to. So that's something positive. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Rachel Cunliffe, and my colleagues, Rachel Wermoff and Freddie Hayward. We're produced by Mae Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review. 